This is Winning Slowly, taking a long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art. And I'm Chris Kreitcher with a barrel full of disagreements and a lot of appreciation too. I'm Stephen Caradini, and I have a smaller number of very intense disagreements. <laughs> well, mine are just so big that they fill the barrel. Oh, that's they're, fair. They're, they're like four of them, but they're mine really... are like black holes. They're super dense. <laughs> They suck in all available light. We are back talking about Ursula M. Franklin's really excellent The Real World of Technology in our evaluation episode, Examination. We've got some disagreements. Yep, yep. We've got some appreciation. You heard a lot of it last time. So I, I will start out with some appreciation. And like I said at the end of the episode last time, she was at the front edge, but not the entirely front edge, as I will get to in a minute, of reassessing what our relationship to technology is in a frame where we have to live with technology. So in things like the year of our Lord 1943 and um, Jock Alul's work, there's still variability in society post-World War II. Mm -hmm. But this is one of the pieces of criticism that says, look, we're going to have to live with this. We're just not getting out of it. How do we live with it? And how do we go forward? Right. And I think that's really positive. That's basically what Winning Slowly has been about, is like, look, there are some things that we have to stop and stop cold. But in other ways, like technology is just here, and how do we handle this in ways that are humanizing right. that are community oriented that are focused on the flourishing of individual and collective groups of people i mean these are the things that winning slowly is about right and so we are definitely in the same zone as her our projects are related mm-hmm. okay now i similarly had a lot to appreciate about this she, like a lot of people, takes the frame, as she puts it on page 34, that we now live in a world, courtesy of the last 150 years of the speed of transmission of messages between humans being fundamentally changed, that the world itself is fundamentally different. And she notes that you could have, with her grandfather or even father, who were born near the turn of the 20th century and even before that in Germany, have inferred a great deal about their lives from knowing that they were farmers in Germany that would have been very much contiguous with things that their great-great-great-grandfathers had done as farmers in Germany. Not so much today. And she is a realist. She thinks that yeah. there are things you can't put back in the bottle, uh, and you have to learn to live with them. But there are some things that we need to put back in the bottle. So she's not like a, even like a total... Right. like constructionist like hey you know we're all just hanging out no. here right right she's not even where someone like often referenced on the show ben thompson is his perspective on the internet in particular has been very much the cat's out of the bag there's no putting it back in might as well just deal with it she thinks there are technologies that ought to be put back in the bottle some of which we might disagree with her even about. Do. And by might, I mean definitely do. And we did a whole season about how you reject technology. So right, where it really comes down to is that there, there's two presuppositions here that we disagree with mm-hmm. and one like forward-going point, largely mm-hmm. speaking. And so the first thing is that her distinction between prescriptive and holistic technologies. 
Now, to be fair to this argument, it's an argument that she establishes and mm -hmm. that she supports and that she uses throughout the book. It is not a one-off. It's not a non-sequitur. This is grounding the whole book. So it's valid, in my opinion. But. But it's dumb. It's a bad <laughs> distinction. <laughs> it's so bad. Technologies don't cleanly slot into those, and she acts throughout the whole book like they do. I mean, you can... Well, what she wants to do is she wants to be the person who makes those distinctions. This one, good. Right. That one, bad. But, like, she's doing the thing she doesn't want to do. <laughs> she's not asking the people who actually use the technologies if they think it's good or bad. How does this work for you? Yeah, she's not doing right. that. Like, she's just assuming from historical analysis and from contemporary analysis. Now, when she talks about her own personal experiences, she actually talks in a slightly mm -hmm. more nuanced way mm -hmm. about how decisions were made and these sorts of things. It's because it's more complicated when you're living it, <laughs> which is her argument, and then she doesn't you do mean, it. You mean it's not just as simple as sewing machines bad? Oh, it was so mind-bogglingly frustrating to be like, you're doing the thing. That's the thing you don't want to do. You're doing it right here. Yep. Yep. And it's not just once either. It's throughout the book that she does this categorization sort of ad hoc, sometimes with her own research supporting it. So when she talks about Chinese metallurgy, she knows what she's talking about. That's mm -hmm. her job. Mm -hmm. But like, it's just... It's just, it's the top-down thing that she's really arguing against, and she does it throughout the book. And to be fair, like, if you're giving lectures slash writing a book, like, you have to make some of those distinctions. But if your whole book is based on the concept of not making this distinction, then you have to not make this distinction. <laughs> like, that's how it works. Yeah. You can't just, like, sidestep it like, yeah. I'm the only one who's allowed to do it, actually, because I'm doing it right. Right. And this comes home to Roost in a couple really critical ways. Chapter five, as we suggested, is the place where we have lots and lots of disagreements. Some with chapter four, some with yeah. chapter six, but especially chapter five. And I referenced the sewing machine thing. And I want to drill in on this and then pivot into one of her other discussions around computing technology, because I think these are illustrative of the way that this goes sideways for her. And in fact, ultimately undermines her own points repeatedly, or just kind of has to hand wave and dismiss and kind yeah. of skip past inconveniences. When, as Stephen quoted last time, she talks about sewing machines, she argues that sewing machines undercut their original promise of enabling women in particular to do more work at home and became a mechanism for, and here I quote, the complete exclusion of workers, unquote. Now, there are probably ways in which she's correct about the historical deployment of the technology. However, if you look at how sewing machines are used today, they're not used in one or the other of the, quote, prescriptive or, quote, holistic modes. To the contrary, they're used very much in both. There are still sweatshops where people are basically treated in mechanized fashion, and we should decry those. We should treat that as massive injustice. We should work to stop those things. Buy clothing that is not manufactured in sweatshops. We should work to end sweatshops. Like, yes, let's do that thing. She's right to call that out as bad. Also, there are a lot of people for whom a sewing machine now, today, and 30 years ago when she was writing, is in fact a means of escaping the 
prescriptive technologies, as she would have it, a way of reclaiming a sense of ownership and of craft and of artisanship and making and maintaining your own clothing and so so forth and so on. There are lots of articles in the COVID era, dear listeners, all about how you can sew up your own clothing, how yeah. you can darn your own socks, how yeah. you can do all these kinds of things. The technology of the sewing machine is not neutral. We're on record from the very first beta season of Winning Slowly is saying that technologies are not usually neutral. In fact, they're never neutral. They create and form structures and habits and all of these things. But a sewing machine is not only a prescriptive technology. It is used in exactly the ways she wants things to be used by, not least, women operating in the ways that she talks about yeah. women operating holistically. Her clincher example in this chapter does the yeah. opposite of the work she wants it to do if you actually know anything about how women in particular but people in general yeah. use sewing machines today it's not a one or the other it's both i'm getting a little worked up there here. is <laughs> a little bit of of historical retro analysis here in that like sewing machines now having 20 some odd years of extra work invested in them have a different shape and space in the technological environment. But even in the 80s, like... Elementary school in the 90s, home ec classes, home ec classes my earlier. My mother had a sewing machine and yeah. fixed stuff. Yeah, it's, it's a thing. It's a weird thing. <laughs> I think partially that's because of commitments to, one, to the feminism that she espouses early, two, to the environmentalist and peace movements that she espouses later, mm -hmm. In that all three of those, particularly in feminism's earlier formations, were pretty binary in the way that they thought mm -hmm. about things. There's either peace or there's war. There's either for right. the environment or against the environment. And she says as much in uh, several chapters about the environment. And there is a real binary between men and women, right? particularly in earlier eras of feminism. And right. so... It's a it's a very kind of hard sexual or gender essentialism there. Roughly speaking, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to put yeah. words in people's mouths, but that's our interpretation of it. So that lands itself on these ideas of holistic and prescriptive technologies that there's just two ways. There's holistic, there's prescriptive. And like I said, she does allow some variants, but it's holistic or prescriptive. And this isn't even historically the only way that she could have viewed this because in the early right. to late 80s, there were scholars in what's called the social construction of technology movement. Beaker and Pinch are two of the leading people of this uh, movement. And it's a academics thinking about technology movement. So Beaker and Pinch's seminal work in 1987 was about how given technology there are socially understood ways that the technology operates and that there's lots of variability between people about how these things can work. And so in communities, people start to develop individual understandings of technologies that turn into communal understandings mm -hmm. of technologies, but that are different potentially based on the commitments that they have around them. And this also sort of ends up going into actor network theory, which is later on down the line, you have things like Mole's hand pump article, and I'll put all of that into the show notes. <laughs> the point here is that technology, even at the time that this was written, was already on the way to being considered as a malleable thing. Right. 
And there are not block uses of technology that exist as the only way a technology can be used. Now, I will say, as Chris noted in the previous episode, cars did do this pattern. Mm-hmm. Largely because there were roads, which is a thing that she argues. Mm-hmm. So this particular slice of argument about like roads made cars, cars made suburbs, suburbs made society makes sense because that's a pattern that people have studied and shows that it's true but with other technologies it doesn't hold right that same way like computers and sewing machines and so there's a problem here because of the binary nature of the holistic versus prescriptive thing when she finds something that fits it she says here it is and then applies that back to everything else right she overgeneralizes there are real examples of what she's talking about but not everything is an example of what she's talking about but it doesn't always right. work that way right and there are lots of people who self-consciously work to the contrary of the kind of technological captivity frame at all sorts of structural levels yeah. in the government and otherwise yeah. And there are all sorts of resistances from all sorts of political ends of the spectrum to the kind of infrastructural investment that she decries here. But she also misses some of the ways in which those technological investments can be welcomed by end users and people's individual experiences. Basically, what I'm describing is a techno-determinist viewpoint versus Mm -hmm. a social constructionist viewpoint or a even more tempered than social constructionist viewpoint, which is our viewpoint, which is not just a, everything is socially constructed all the time. There's a, a brand of techno-determinism, especially in chapter five, that is right. just, it's just punishing. There's just nothing right. that you can do as a person in this formulation of right. how technology works. And partially that's for effect. Like she wants to make it seem that way, so that when you get to chapter six, which is like, and that's why we should have more people involved because those other ones didn't at all. And it was awful. Right. And it's like, yeah, right. but like, that's not, I mean, in broad generalizations, that's true. But like, you just black boxed like 50 years <laughs> of history, right? Like, right. And it leads her to mischaracterize things, which is one of the things that made me kind of saddest because she does really good, careful work in a bunch of places. But when she gets to things like the development of computing, she basically ends up on what I can only describe as almost conspiracy theorizing in that everything is actually the technologists trying to motivate you to buy these things. And so she's just gone through the work of showing you how technologies get adopted and how early adopters, the honeymoon phase with cars was, you know, early adopters sharing information with each other about how they could make their computer do more cool things and whatnot. And then she starts describing technology magazines and says that columns on how I found 10 more uses for Lotus 123 or how I extended the capacity of my Mac beyond imagination are really just about ways that the technologists behind those magazines were just trying to get the public to adopt them. But no, in fact, most of these were enthusiast magazines that, yeah, they had ads in them from the technologies, but they were enthusiasts who liked the technologies and wanted to be able to share the cool things they were learning, just like the early car users were. Now, you can say that that ultimately reinscribes and reinforces the growth of these technologies. There's a legitimate line of criticism to be offered there, but she doesn't make it. She just basically 
offers a conspiracy theory where all of these things are just the technologists trying to drive their narrative. And she gets even to the point of trying to conjure an image of harmless domesticity, where the language of things like booting up and boilerplates and mouse and menu are there to give the user, quote, the feeling of choice and control, of mastering a comfortable relationship with the machine and other users, unquote. And she's got this kind of suspicious, almost sneering attitude like, how could you not see through that? It's this facade and this charade to try to cover up the real truth of the technology. You're like, no, actually, if you know the history of the technology, people were trying to make computers useful and accessible to people. Yeah. Like, they were trying to do the thing you want them to do here. Yeah. And so, and it, it's not just a computer where she has that sort of attitude. She she right. talks later and she says, these decisions do incorporate political biases and political priorities, which in a technical setting need not be articulated. As far as the public is concerned, the nature of the decision and its often hidden political agenda becomes evident only when the plans and designs are executed and in use. Of course, at this point, change becomes almost impossible. Now, I will say this with a caveat. That is a horrifically skeptical way of thinking about how policy works. Now, yeah. She uses as her example the most horrifically racist piece of technological structural infrastructural building that America has. So, on the one hand, she has identified a point <laughs> a real thing that exists but then she had because it's Robert Moses's bridges, and if you don't know what Robert right. Moses's bridges are, you can find it in the show notes. We've talked about it before. Robert Moses's bridges actually exist, and they're racist. Yep. But that does not mean that every <laughs> single other time no. it happens, it's racism, <laughs> right? <laughs> because that's well, what one she way just I sum- said. Right. One way I summarize it to Stephen as we were chatting about this as we were reading these chapters is that she commits what I would name Kreitcho's corollary to Hanlon's razor. Hanlon's razor says, never ascribe to malice what is sufficiently explained by stupidity. I would likewise say, never ascribe to malice what is adequately explained by naivete. A lot of things that have gone wrong from technologies are what Ben Thompson describes as being the fruit of the Pollyannish assumption. Technology is good and people are good. And so new technologies given to people will always work out well. This is like being Pollyanna. Everything is good. Everything's going to work out well. A lot of the worst stupidities we're dealing with today about Facebook and Twitter, for example, are not only trivially explained by that. That's actually what their founders are on record as saying from the outset as they did. Like, you go look at everything Zuckerberg has ever said about Facebook, and he just has this deep commitment to this Pollyannish idea that people are good, more connection is good, more technology to make more connection is good. And it's taken the last four to five years for him to even begin to consider that that might conceivably not be true. You don't have to attribute malice. You don't have to attribute these nefarious political actors working to bring this about. You can just have people being pretty naive, and it gets you most of the way through most of these problems. What I would continue to say here is that, like, there are bad actors. We've talked about Mm -hmm. them for seven straight seasons. But there are Mm -hmm. also good actors, and there are naive actors. Right. All of these things exist, and they all work together. Now, you can say, like, well... The bad actors control the naive and the good actors. 
let's talk about that. Let's discuss. <laughs> that's, like that's a different. That's a thing to that's establish. A different argument. Let's talk about right. how this works. You can argue that by the dint of technological determinism, every actor is bad. Also, a thing you can argue. Not a thing argued mm-hmm. here. So Mm-mm. there's just so many lines of argument that address some of the concerns that she's doing here right that just aren't there and like partially that's because of the form of the book which is the lecture even though it's written out i'm really interested to read the other chapters which were actually written instead of lectures Mm -hmm. but partially that's because her priors lead her to these conclusions right and on the one hand, that's good because that's how arguments work. But on the other hand, that's bad because <laughs> your priors were bad and now your arguments are bad. Right. That's a particularly large problem here. And this leads even to the point where Chris and I both were like, whoa, whoa, where she starts to talk about the Soviet Union and maybe it wasn't that bad. And I was like, <sighs> right. You, she she critiques the military industrial complex. Hey, Stephen and I have done that, too. Hey, no less an American military luminary than General and President Eisenhower, who brought the term military-industrial complex into the American vernacular, critiqued it during the Cold War. There's plenty to critique there. And yet, you don't have to say that the conflict between the broadly liberal West and the Soviet Union was they're just to provide justifications for these technological activities to, quote, generate the need for a credible long-term enemy. You can rightly say that there's a lot of things that happened in the defense industry in the West that were unhealthy and unhelpful. And you could you could say that at the same time as you held the view that the Soviet Union did some pretty wicked things and was a legitimate, aggressive threat to a lot of countries. Now, you can even say that while saying that America did some incredibly wicked things along the way, quote, in defense of liberty, unquote. We've said that too. You can even say that, like, we shouldn't have handled the Soviet Union the way that we did, which is fine by me. But, like, they were bad. Right. They were not an imagined enemy. Right. They weren't just made up and justified as a way of continuing to do technological development. There were times when we thought they were going to launch nuclear yeah, missiles like, at literally, us. Literally, the Bay of Pigs incident is a real thing that happened. It's a thing. <laughs> right. Partially, you can also argue that the technology influenced the skepticisms with the Russians and the Soviets, and they weren't actually as bad as we thought they were. And I will even fully grant that line of argument. Yep. But they did real things. There is a real world <laughs> right. of Soviets, just like there is a real world of technology. Right. Like, there are things right. that happen. There are things that happen in America. Nothing is as reducible to a direct line of technology pushing this narrative yeah. as she wants it to be. Yeah. Even though those things do happen, and that line exists. Like, if you mm-hmm. talk to people in the Pentagon, the thing the Pentagon wants to do most is get more money. Duh. Right. Yeah. Bureaucracies do, in fact, entrench themselves and seek to grow. So I'm not even arguing that we may have over-ramped up our nuclear production, probably. We don't need 2,600 nuclear missiles, probably. Like, I get that. (laughs) More than enough to destroy the entire world three times over between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. Right. There are legitimate critiques to be made there. But it's not the only line of reasoning. 
There exactly. are other lines of reasoning. There are other things that we're interpreting. There were other lived experiences that were happening mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that had something to say about that, right? Like if you go back and look at like all of like the moments that brought down the Berlin Wall, it's right. not just like one thing. Like someone didn't just go and swing a sledgehammer at it, right? Like it's <laughs> it's a bunch of things that happened over the right. course of a decade, if not even longer, depending on how long your historical viewpoint goes, that ended up with someone swinging a sledgehammer. Right. And so right. it's 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 not even that she's wrong. It's that she doesn't have a viewpoint that extends to other viewpoints potentially. And so, yeah. you know, there's a reasonable critique that like, hey, like this is a book about a viewpoint. Like you should say your viewpoint. Fair. But if your viewpoint is exclusionary, then it's not going to be accurate. We talked last time about lenses and how looking through a different lens can be helpful thing and can help you see things that you would otherwise miss. But as I was re-listening to that episode in that discussion, one of the things I was thinking about that framing of epistemologies and lenses on things Mm. is that they can also be distortive. Mm -hmm. And a sufficiently distortive lens can lead you to miss things that you would otherwise see. Yeah. And I think that's partly what's happening here is She's not wrong to see a lot of the things she sees. In fact, a lot of the things she describes in a this happened sense, she's totally right about. And she's even totally right about her analysis of the causes of a lot of them. But because this lens is gathering so much light and focusing it so particularly in one specific way, it ends up distorting her view of things that don't actually match that narrative because everything gets bent to fit it. And I think in evaluating epistemologies, including our own, always starting with our own, always, we have to be aware of that danger. What is it that I might be missing? What is it that this way of viewing the reality might be Mm -hmm. distorting for Mm -hmm. me? And what is it that I might fail to see or miss see? Because that's the other thing. It's not just that you might fail to see things. If you think about a, a way a bad lens works... It can change the shape of something in very unhelpful ways. It can Mm -hmm. change the color of something Mm -hmm. in very unhelpful ways. When I was a kid, until I had LASIK on my eyes in my 20s, I had very, very, very bad vision. I had to hold books up a matter of uh, an inch or two from my face to be able to resolve words. That distorted my view of the world. It meant that there were things I could not see and things that I missaw if I didn't have glasses on or contacts in. Mm -hmm. And epistemologies work like that for us intellectually. We will miss things or we will missee things Mm -hmm. if we're not using some kind of corrective. And developing a corrective is hard. I would argue that it's one of the hardest tasks of intellectual work period of developing proper correctives to your own epistemological blind spots. And one of the primary reasons that she has the blind spots that she has is she has a strong reaction against nuclear energy. Mm -hmm. And you may say, what? What? (laughs) (laughs) And But this pulls together a bunch of the pieces. But this pulls together what she's doing. And she, she mentions this in one paragraph Mm-hmm. Um, and then later at, in chapter six, she mentions it for, I, I think, a page. She is strongly against nuclear energy because she feels like it is uh, anti-environment and also anti-people and roughly basically the outflow of the military-industrial conflicts. 
Mm-hmm. In the one paragraph she mentions, she says she has refused to work on cleaning up nuclear waste. And the reason for that is because she feels like if she helps clean up nuclear waste, she will allow more nuclear plants. She will only work on nuclear waste after there are no more nuclear plants, because then she won't be helping more of them to exist. Right. And this is an extremely common sort of argument against technologies, is that what we do to enable technologies will necessarily cause them to happen. It's techno-determinist. You know, the closer and closer you get to policy, the more and more that's true. Like when you actually say this is a policy now, you are literally making it true. Right. So there is a line there where that's happening. But at a basic level, she thinks that A, nuclear power is bad. B, we should not work to enable it. And C, the people who are working to enable it are not talking to people that would obviously tell them, we don't want this. Right. Those are the grounding presuppositions here that are in the background of this book. Mm -hmm. And the problem with that is that the first two are roughly true and the third one is completely wrong. Right. There are people who want nuclear power. Hello. And they don't want it because they're technologists who are run amok with mad power. It's because fossil fuels are super bad worse. (laughs) Right. Like... (laughs) Right. I would be hugely in favor of very carefully tailored mix of renewable energy like solar and wind and water with nuclear energy because they're so much better for the environment as well as more sustainable as well as leading you to think about the impact these things have. Yeah. So fossil fuels are basically the equivalent of just having a nuclear explosion going on until the (laughs) world is destroyed. Like that's my opinion. It's not like the same scope in terms of like when Chernobyl explodes, obviously that's a super specific localized, large, but localized problem. And again, because this is very concerned with the local and the specific and the individual people, the people who died and were deformed and severely harmed in Chernobyl had a very bad experience of nuclear power. And that's very bad. And we do not even for a minute minimize it. But at the same time, like, if we don't do nuclear, then, like, we're doing this other thing. And that's part of the whole problem of this exclusionary Mm -hmm. line of thought is that, okay, I don't like nuclear destruction either. I don't like Chernobyl. I don't like Three Mile Island. But in the absence of doing a nuclear power plant, we're just doing fossil fuels into the atmosphere repeatedly. Like, I'm from Oklahoma. I've read about fracking. This is not a good idea. Right. I'm not here talking about nuclear power under the shield of this book. I'm talking about the ways that we think about things that we do or don't Mm -hmm. like and the possibilities that those exclude. Right having outcomes like she largely won that argument there have been almost no nuclear power plants built since the time that she wrote that book yep it was the worst (laughs) it had consequences and to the points that she tries to make otherwise and this gets again at the ways that i i suggested earlier she ends up undercutting some of her own points there are ways in which those kinds of local considerations end up undercutting and undermining 
global considerations that affect everybody. Externalities, one might say. Large, because large scale. Part of the trick is as opposed to localized. Lar- very large scale externalities, right? Because the the issue with fossil fuel usage for energy production is that the local impacts are usually not that bad and pretty yeah. easy to clean up, and the global scale impacts are kind of really bad and very difficult to clean up, and the inability, unwillingness, or otherwise failure to grapple with the relationships between those is is one of the serious ways this book goes amiss. Because whenever we're evaluating technologies, we have to be considering those kinds of questions. And one of the things she doesn't get at here, but that I think others have done better and well, is to say that some of the people that we have to consider are people we cannot ask because they're our children yeah. and our children's children and our children's children's children. And I can't go ask them, but I can think about them when I make considerations and choices. Well, I I think she would be totally and easily on board with that concept. I mean, her other her other writing is yeah about to be that, sure essentially. So mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, so I I think that that's no knock on her. I think that's just a further on continuation of what she would say. But right. I think that the bigger yeah that's the fair. bigger problem. I think is that it excludes so much of the externalities. Right. right. It leaves no room to evaluate the trade-offs and the, exactly. the difficulties. Exactly. It is in highly focusing on a set of externalities. She does not include the whole range of externalities. And mm-hmm. again, she definitely right. could have fossil fuels were definitely being discussed as problematic in the 80s, even into the 70s. So this is definitely a thing that she could have said. Now, she may have decided that nuclear energy was more of a threat than fossil fuels, Mm -hmm. right? Like she may have looked at Chernobyl and said like, well, that's going to be bad if we do that again. And that's true. It would. But (laughs) I think that this, I think it's a bad choice. I think the, the scale of the problem is so large that you can't look at it just locally. You can't look at the lived experience because like, the lived experience of a car does not tell you that the earth is overheating, right? It just doesn't. And so <laughs> right. I right. think that's one of the main problems. But here's the deal is that the conclusion that she draws from all of this is that we need to get more people involved in, in the discussion is mm-hmm. actually the right one. And like if somebody asked me if I yep. wanted nuclear power, she'd be like, that guy's going to say, nah. I'm going to say like, yeah, let's do it. right you know advancing an argument is important advancing an argument when you have a forum is important but you know she's just not accounting that there are people that aren't like her i would add to that that when you actually ask the opinions of all the people who are going to be involved some of them are going to want certain technologies some of them are going to choose to adopt certain technologies and they're going to adopt some people still want fossil fuels right I got to deal with that. Right. And and there's a necessary attempt to persuade, as you just said, and that's part of what she's doing here. But there also has to be that work of understanding why is it that people disagree with you? It's not just because they're evil. It's not just because it's a conspiracy theory. It's not just because they're stupid. They may have legitimate, well-founded reasons for preferring something other than you. And I think it's perfectly fair. We did a whole season on this to say that sometimes people's Desires are set up by broken, deeply deficient structures. Yep, true. And yet, 
you might be wrong too. I might well, be wrong and, too. And to just and, assume that someone is wrong is not going to go anywhere. Like there's not a way forward. Mm-hmm. Right. On the specifics around nuclear, I think it's also worth calling out again that there's also a conflation of kinds of concerns. And this is not a surprise to anyone who studied the history of the peace movement, the anti-nuclear movement, and leftist movements in the West over the 20th century in general. But these are things that could, in principle, be teased apart. They're not here, and they weren't through the history of that movement in their relationship to the environment, in their relationship to the peace movement, etc. But they're things you can and we think should tease apart. And a careful teasing apart of those kinds of considerations is also the kind of careful teasing apart that's needed to say, are computers holistic or prescriptive? Well, both. Here we are using what she might describe from what we get from her book as very prescriptive technologies to do something that we do end to end ourselves with handcrafted artisanal website building by me and handcrafted artisanal podcast editing by both of us and handcrafted email responses by Steven and... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we handle all of this podcast. We don't have a whole list of right <laughs> of contributors at the end because there aren't any. <laughs> we don't have an executive right. producer. It's just us. There's no production breakdown of labor here. It's it's very artisanal, folks. We don't have a benevolent overlord like wait, wait, don't tell me does. Although right. if anybody wants to be our benevolent overlord, I assume that comes with money. <laughs> so let us know. <laughs> I think it's worth closing on that note that there are a lot more options than she grants and that as we think about epistemologies and epistemologies particularly Mm -hmm. around science and technology we should be careful not to foreclose because of our existing biases we should be careful to think about what we might miss and what we might miss see and it requires humility and it's hard. Yeah. Which, ironically, is exactly what, what she, she closes for. the book by calling yeah. for. So we agree with your conclusion. Yeah. Just that chapter five thing, not not so much, and lots of chapters four and yeah, six. Yeah, I mean, and we agree with her her point that, you know, we're interested in, in humans being more involved in the process. It's just that mm-hmm. she has commitments, we have commitments, everybody has commitments. And I would recommend this book to someone. I'd tell them chapter five is a little, yep. a little out there in terms of the rest of the book. But I think that to get people to think about how technology interacts with the world in grounded settings. So this isn't a yeah. book of philosophy in the strictest sense. Right. It cites philosophers, but it's, it right. really is what it says. It's a book about how technology works in the real world. And particularly in Canada in the 80s and 70s. And it works differently mm-hmm. now, not so much differently as she describes unfortunately there are some things that i agree with her that we wish didn't happen yep but i think that part of it is that no matter whether you agree or disagree i can see why people love this book it moves the conversation forward easily it's good it's yeah. a good argument in terms of being able to understand it interact with it figure out whether you agree with it yeah you know it's good agreed also we didn't get to touch on like second wave feminism hardly at all and that's not because we agree or disagree or because we're dudes and we didn't want to deal with it It just (laughs) 
wasn't part this of... This episode is already 45 minutes long. Yeah. It's it's just not... I mean, it feels sort of weird to be like two dudes who are like, let's not talk about feminism. But like we talked about it earlier in the last two episodes. So yep. we direct you there. And I'm sure it will come up again in a later episodes. So Indeed. if you're like, wait, go back to the feminism thing. Sorry, guys and girls and everybody. All people. Sorry, people. That's just, we didn't get there. As always, thanks to everyone who sponsors the show. You can sponsor the show if you like at patreon.com slash winning slowly or cash.me slash dollar sign winning slowly. If you would like to get in touch with us and have a handcrafted artisanal response by our own Stephen Caradini <laughs> and no one else, because it's not going to be me. I'm, yeah. I'll just be honest at this point. You can send us a note on Twitter at winning slowly on Facebook at winning slowly podcast via patreon if you're a super fancy supporter in twist our chat and conversation app of choice or of course our favorite via email at hello at winning slowly.org we will be back next month with a discussion of mary midgley's evolution as a religion that should be very interesting as always thanks for listening She commits what I would describe as Kreischer's corollary to Hanlon's razor. Whoa, <laughs> corollary? You got a Corolla. <laughs> yes. Let's try that again. <laughs>